our summer blockbuster series, that's what I'm calling it anyway. This is our summer blockbuster story, the story of Jonah, which is familiar to a lot of people, both actually not just outside the, or inside the church, but outside the church as well. Um, it's one of those stories because of this incredible experience that Jonah had, you know, being swallowed up by a great fish and uh, being in that fish, living in that fish for some three days. People know that story, whether they believe it as truth or not is is not the point. To look at uh, the experience of the sailors that we just read about in this passage. Originally, when we got to uh, uh, verses 4 to uh, 16, at least in my head, I was thinking, well, we'll do one sermon on that, and then we'll carry on. We'll see what happened to Jonah on the ship and how he gets thrown out, and then we'll, we'll move on. And then what I, the more I, the more I read it, uh, the more I realized we have, to, we have to do two. We have to, really, we should do three, but we can't go on forever. Um, we have to do at least two. We have to see this, uh, this event from the perspective of these sailors as much as we have to see this event from the perspective of Jonah. And, um, you know, uh, uh, pastors love to be clever whenever possible. And uh, I, I just want to turn your attention to the title of the, the message. Anybody know where that's from? Riders on the Storm, yeah, The Doors, right? Yeah, The Doors song, Riders on the Storm. How does that song go? Well, I don't know all of it, but I think it starts out, um, uh, no, I'm getting all the, I'm I'm missing the first verse, Uh, into this world we're thrown like a dog without a bone or an actor out on loan. Uh, something, something, something. But then, okay, but this is the part that really matters. Then it says, uh, there's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Now, I don't think Jim Morrison was thinking about Jonah when he wrote that song and that line. But these soldiers, little do they know that there's a killer on the road, on their ship. And if they give this man a ride, they may die. And what we're going to look at in this story about these, 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 uh, these sailors is that their experience in this passage is actually, believe it or not, a window, okay, a window into our modern religious climate. And I know that that might strike you as odd because this is like a super old story from a completely different culture. But what I want you to see here is that the more things change, the more they say they stay the same. Because what we see here are three things about human nature. We see that we all have a religious impulse, that we all have a religious practice. And that, frankly, is actually not such a great thing. But we also see, third point, that we have a religious substitute. So we're going to look at this passage together and discover these three three things. You can see an outline in your bulletin on the back page somewhere. And also, uh, if we have time, we're going to have opportunity to ask some questions at the end for clarification. If you have a question that pops in your mind as we're uh, going through this passage, please write it down, jot it down, and you can ask it at the end. So, so let's, let's go to work. First of all, this story shows us 
the human religious impulse. Every human being has a religious impulse. I'm not saying, okay, that this text says that every human being is religious in the classic sense of choosing one of the world's great religions and practicing that religion. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, is that this story reveals that all human beings, regardless of whether they're going to admit it or not, all human beings have a sense of the divine. They have a sense of a power beyond them, outside of them. It is transcendent. It is all-powerful. It is mysterious. It is something that they, that they need to know something about. They have this religious impulse. Here is Jonah, okay? He's on this ship, and he goes to sleep. And it says in verse 4 that the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Now, Literally, it says that God hurled a wind at the sea. He's like a, he's like a, what's that guy, Aldoris Chapman or whatever? He's like the fastest pitcher in, in uh, if you ever watch this guy, I think he plays for the Yankees right now. This guy is massive. He's like 6'7", and he's got an arm like an absolute cannon. And when he unleashes a fastball, it's like, it tops out at somewhere like 105 miles an hour is, I think, what he's been recorded at. It's insane. It's, and it's pinpoint accuracy, like right in the glove. This is what God does with this ship. He picks this ship. Some scholars actually say that when it says he hurled this wind on the sea, that he actually somehow isolated the ship that Jonah is on and hurled this wind directly at that ship whereby ships passing by, other ships, could see that it was in distress while they were in calm waters. And so God has orchestrated things in such a way that He attacks this ship. And then it says that all the sailors, this is verse 5, were afraid. Now that's a big deal because these were big sea sailors, okay? These weren't like, I went to... I went to my brother-in-law's cottage when we were uh, on vacation, and he has a sailboat. And my son learned how to sail and went out sailing on the lake. And it's this little boat. It's no longer than this set of chairs right here. And you can man it on your own and go sailing on the little lake because that's safe. But even when it gets pretty windy with that little boat, things get choppy, and you gotta, you got to know what you're doing or you could turn that thing over. Like, it's not easy. Sailing's not easy. But these guys are not that kind of sailor. These guys are big ship sailors. These are the kind of sailors that, that go out on the sea, not on the Sea of Galilee, but on the Mediterranean Sea. These are tough, hard-nosed guys. These are the guys you see on that uh, show Deepest Catch or whatever, and they go out on the, on, under the ocean, and they are like roughnecks. That's what these guys are like. And it says that they are absolutely freaking out because they think they're going to die. So they, they have entered the perfect storm. This is like nothing they have ever seen before. They are terrified, and it says that they all cry out to their gods. Now, this, this should not surprise us. Here's a principle for you to think about. The storms of life reveal the truth about us. And the truth that the storms of life reveal about us is that we are actually God-knowers and God-needers. See, these sailors were not, they weren't particularly religious. But when the storm uh, rose up, they had this like 
involuntary reflex that they had to cry out to God. It just happened. And that's what troubles do to us. They reveal to us that we actually are religious people, that we do cry out to something or someone beyond us and outside us looking for their help. Now, I know that if you're a skeptic here this morning, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't prove anything. All it proves is, is that this individual had kind of an, a moment of irrational fear. They weren't thinking straight. They weren't reasoning. They were just sort of reacting out of their gut uh, because they were panicking under pressure. And that does not prove that God exists. And I'm not trying to prove to you that God exists. That's true. It doesn't prove that God exists. What I'm trying to prove to you is that no true skeptic exists. See, if you've ever been in one of those storms and you thought your life was in the balance or you thought your, your livelihood was in the balance or something like that, the thing that you discover is, is, is you're not as brave as you thought you were. I've talked to people who have said that, you know, I, I thought I was pretty together. I thought I was a pretty brave person. I thought I kind of had my act together and I was doing okay. And then something hit. This crisis hit. This uh, experience happened to me. And I realized I was far, far weaker than I could ever imagine. Because you see, most of us, we're spending our lives in the, in the, in the quiet parts of our lives where things are stable and going along okay. We live with this facade that we've got it all together, that we're in control of things, that we know how things are going to go, and then, and then all of a sudden, the diagnosis comes, or the accident happens, or the bad news hits. Some of you are parents, perhaps, and you remember a phone call like my parents got when I was 16 years old, and it said, Mr. Vandenbrink, yes, I am officer so-and-so. I'm calling to tell you that your son has been in a terrible car accident. And you have this absolute moment of panic. And you realize you're not all you thought you were. I'm a much weaker and more helpless individual than I ever, I ever imagined. See, you've heard the old saying, right? There's no atheists in foxholes. Even Mark Twain, some of you may know that Mark Twain was a skeptic all his life. And he had reasons, if I can put it that way, good reasons not to believe in God. So he was a, he was a very brilliant man, a very bright man, and he had kind of thought it through and he had many, many good reasons not to believe in God. But then in his autobiography, he tells about how at one point in his life, somebody in his family became very ill and was on death's door. And to his shame, in his, in his opinion, to his shame, he prayed. He said, I prayed like a coward. I prayed like a dog. Because that impulse resides deep inside all of us. I'm not saying that that proves that the reality of God. I'm saying it proves the reality of something in us. We all are seeking some sort of transcendent power outside of us. And that translates then, of course, into our religious practice. What do I mean by that? So these scalers, or scalers, these sailors are terrified, they're freaked out, they think they're going to die, and so what do they do? They pray. And it says in the text, it says that they prayed each to his own God. Now, this is how this worked. 
They were what's called polytheists. They believed in many gods because most people in ancient cultures believed that there were all kinds of gods in the world and in the universe. And they all sort of had their own jurisdiction or dominion. There was no one single transcendent God that had power over absolutely everything in the universe because all gods were, in, in a sense, part of the universe. Even though they're gods and we're creatures, they are still part of this universe. So they had, they had stuff, if I can put it this way, that they were in charge of. And you couldn't, of course, pray to all the gods because there's too many of them. You've got to live. So you would choose the one that you put your trust in and you would put your hope in and, and believe that that god would take care of you. And these guys are seamen, right? They're sailors and therefore they probably believed in the god of water and the god of business and, and the god of travel and protection and all that kind of stuff. And they figured that those gods could handle their problems for them. And so they're all praying to their own God, and even, they even want Jonah to do the same thing. So in verse 6, it says that the captain comes to Jonah, and he says, how can you be asleep? Get up. Call on your God too. Maybe, and then this is very telling, it says, maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, now we fast forward a couple thousand years, and here we are today living in modern Western, uh, Western culture, and we're... We're smart Canadians, and maybe we say, look at that silly belief in, in all these gods. Why would they do that kind of thing? That's, that's ridiculous. But you've got to understand, what they were doing is, is they were putting their hope and their trust in something outside of them. If you have this impulse, you will look for something to satisfy this impulse. And so they said, I will be okay if that God is happy with me. If I have that God in my corner or in my back pocket or on my team, I will be okay. I can be safe. I can face the world. And what about today? People say, look, I, if I have enough money in the bank, I'll be okay. As long as I got enough money in the bank, I can handle just about anything. Or some people say, as long as I have success or as long as I have the right home life and the, and the right family, I will be okay. Or maybe they say, as long as I have the, the right relationship, like if, that, if I'm with this guy or I'm with this girl, as long as I'm with them, I will be okay. And you know what? The irony is, is that anybody who's in a good marriage, you know, you know the pull of that. Anybody who's in a good marriage, who's really in love with their spouse, knows that there is a danger to, of, of putting your trust in, in your spouse and thinking that as long as you have them, you can face anything because you tell yourself and you tell them, and sometimes you're saying it just to be kind and loving, but you don't realize that it's actually insane. Uh, I don't know what I'd do without you. I don't know if I could carry on without you. It could be anything. It could be your looks. You know, I, um, I, I had one wedding to officiate this summer, and I have another wedding to attend this summer, my niece's wedding. And so I went out and I bought a new suit. I haven't bought a new suit, I think, since my high school graduation. So I, like, okay, I bought, I bought like a really ugly, cheap one, like right off the rack, and it was terrible. But I, I did not buy ever a good suit. So I went out and we, and we bought a good suit. And I put this thing on, and... You could just, I could just feel my confidence rise. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking good. 
And I, 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 there was something about putting this suit on and, and feeling good and looking good and having Jessica say, yeah, you look good. That, that made me, it, it, I'm, I'm not, honestly, you feel yourself, you stand up a little straighter, you hold your head up a little bit higher and you think, okay, yeah, bring it on. I can take this because I look good. And we're laughing at that. We're thinking, oh, that's so funny. Ha, ha, ha. But you know, there are people who actually impoverish themselves. They are broke because it's the next Gucci bag they need or it's the next belt or it's the next whatever for them to just face the world. Or what about plastic surgery? Or what about eating disorders? It gets pretty serious when we put our trust in these things we actually end up worshiping them and we actually end up serving them. For some people, it's workaholism. For some people, it's sex addiction. Sex addiction. Some people, it's working out incessantly. They're obsessed with their physical body. And we do what we think that idol or that God that we're crying out to, we're doing what we think it wants us to do. So in verse 6, uh, the, the captain, he says, maybe he will take notice of us. Maybe he will take notice of us. That's it. If I do the right thing, the God will take notice of me and it will take care of me. Or in verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, the, the sailors asked Jonah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down to, for us? How do we appease the God? See, this is how our religious practice works. And you see this, and I say this all the time, but you see it all over the place. I obey in order to be accepted. If I do what I'm supposed to do, then God will do what He's supposed to do, and He'll give me the thing that I want. You see this today when people sometimes, they go through a crisis, they go through a trauma, they have some experience in their life, and they become scared and they're traumatized, and they, be, they feel unsafe, and they feel vulnerable, and so they say to themselves, and they say to others, I need to get right with God. And so they get religious, right? They, what is it? What do I got to do? Okay, I got to go to church. So they start attending church. Okay, I should start praying. Okay, I'll start praying. Maybe if they're following uh, an Eastern religion, they say, okay, I got to start meditating and I, I need to start practicing certain uh, yogic moves or something like that. And they start doing that. Or, or maybe they start reading to, to find uh, how to follow the Eightfold Path or, or whatever. But you see, the motive behind that kind of behavior, it's always fear. These men, they were afraid to die. They thought their lives, was on, the lives were on the line and so they prayed or they, fought, they were afraid to offend this God, and so they bargained with him. In verse 14, it says, they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. They knew that murder was wrong, but this guy said, throw me into the sea. And they're like, well, okay, what are we supposed to do? Break the law? Yeah, but if your God wants us to do it, we'll do it in order to get what we want from this God. See, it's a manipulative form of religious practice that is based on fear, or to use more churchy language, it's works-based righteousness. 
It's the very thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is always talking about when he says that, you are, that we are trying to win favor with God by how we behave, by the things that we do. It's basically saying, and, I, and this is this, I got this from Keller, Tim Keller, so I got to give credit where it's due for sure. Uh, he points this out. It's basically saying, I'll do anything if. It's saying to God, look, I'll do anything if. If you'll help me, I'll do whatever you want. But as Keller points out, and this is something that I, I didn't realize until he said it, I, I heard him talk about it, and it just blew me away. That statement actually proves that you won't. Now stick with me here because it took me a while to figure out what he was talking about. When you say to God, I'll do anything if you do this and this and this, that is basically saying that you won't do the one thing that God wants you to do. Because all throughout the Bible, what you discover is, is that the God of the Bible, the one thing He wants from us is our love, our devotion, our commitment to Him without any ifs. No conditions. God, I'll follow you if you give me that guy or you give me that girl. That's an if. That's a condition. God, I will follow you if you take away this disease. That's an if. That's a condition. The one thing that God wants from us is an unconditional love where we come to Him and we say, you are God, I am not, I will follow you no matter what. If you say to God, I will do anything if you do this, what you're saying is, I won't do the one thing that you want. You're saying this relationship is conditional. It's a selfish relationship. And you know what? See that. They see that. They see that in the church all the time. They see so-called Christians all the time going to God because God gives them what they want, or they think that God is giving them what they want, and they're trying to get from God the things that they want. I want a relationship. I want peace of mind. I want my kids to grow up in a nice moral way. How many people start going to church when they have babies? All of a sudden, God is very important in their lives because now they have a kid. And they want their kid to grow up with a good moral structure and in a good community with good friends. And well, where's a good place to find that? Church. No, I'm not, I, you know, frankly, I don't care how you came. <laughs> if that's why you started coming to church and that's why you're here, more power to you. But you can't stay that way. Because you'll be living in fear. You'll constantly see your relationship with God as one that is utterly conditional where you have got to put in the hours or put in the money or put in the behaviors in order to get the goods. And non-religious people, secular people, they see it all the time and they don't want to end up in a, in a, in a religion like that. Now, they may not see that they're actually dealing with this, their very same problem. They just don't know that it's religious. They're putting their, their hope and their trust in, in all these other things that I mentioned before. But in the same token, why trade one fear for another? You're still stuck. That's our religious practice. That's how people express this religious impulse in our, in our modern, sophisticated world today. The question is then, is there a way out of that? 
Is there a way out of this cycle of fear? And the answer is yes, but you need to understand if this is our natural impulse and the natural way that we operate, the, the, the only solution has got to be truly supernatural. In verse 12, the sailors are told what to do. Remember in verse 11, they say, what should we do? What do we got to do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah replies, he says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm, because I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, it's interesting, they, they understand very clearly that they're saying, kill me, or that he's saying, kill me. You dump him into the sea, everybody is assuming he's a dead man. Jonah's not assuming he's going to come out of this alive. The sailors are not assuming that he's going to come out of this alive. But what is amazing to me is that at first, they won't do it. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but let me tip my hand. What a rebuke. These filthy pagan sailors show more concern for Jonah than Jonah showed for them. It's a rebuke to the church. And yet here they are stuck. Finally, they have to give in because they, they see that there is no other way to be saved. There is no other route to salvation. There's no other way out of this. And so they toss them overboard. And here's the amazing thing. Look, listen to verse 15 and 16. Then they took Jonah and threw him aboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this... The men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. Now, what's going on? This is extremely telling. Fear is a big part of this story, right? Um, so in verse 5, they're afraid of the storm, like there's the storm, so they're afraid, right? And, and in verse 10, there's the storm that's raging around them, and so they're afraid. Now in verse 16, there's no storm, the storm is gone, everything is calm, they've come out the other side, and it says they're still afraid. In fact, it says they greatly feared. Why doesn't it say, and their fear went away? Storm, we're going to die afraid. Storm, we're going to die afraid. Storm is over. We're not going to die afraid. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, the reason it's odd is because this is a different kind of fear. Because, you see, they no longer fear death and they no longer fear judgment. Now, they, they're afraid because of forgiveness. See, Jonah was this willing substitute, willing. It took a while for him to get there, but in the sense, he said, look, you got to throw me into the sea. I got to die in your place in order for you guys to be accepted, in order for God to be appeased. You need to let me die in your place. And God did accept that. God forgave them. And, 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 and their fear, it says, was increased by that. Because God forgave them, their fear went up. The trouble is over. The storm has passed. They have no selfish motive left to do whatever God wants them to do. And yet, what does it say they do? It says in verse 16, it says they offered a sacrifice. That was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And it says they made vows to him. What does that mean? 
It means they said, we're going to follow you. It means I'm going to give my life to you. It means, however, there's no ifs. Because the if is gone, do you understand? The if is taken care of. The if was, keep me alive. But that's, that's not a problem anymore. Do you remember that story I told you a couple weeks ago about the chaplain? Let me tell you again. I heard a story once about a, a, one of the things that happens in small towns is that uh, if there is a, a hospital in the town, the ministers around that town, they're on call as chaplains in the hospital and they get a pager and sometimes they get calls to go and minister to people in the hospital. And I heard a story once of a guy who got a call in the middle of the night uh, to come to the hospital because there was a man who had just received x-rays that demonstrated that he was going to die soon that his disease was terminal. So the guy gets in his car and he drives all the way to the hospital and goes up to the room, knocks on the door, comes in, and the guy says, oh, no, I am so sorry, Pastor. I really apologize for getting you out of bed and calling you in here. See, it turns out I thought I was dying, so I called you, but, you know, then the doctors came back and they were very apologetic and they explained to me that they had read the wrong x-rays about me and it turns out that I'm not dying, I'm okay, I'm actually not particularly religious and I don't really need your services anymore. That's the religious approach. That's our typical religious practice. But that's not what these soldiers did. They had been transformed by love. And so this fear, they greatly feared the Lord. That's not terror. That's not afraid of being having the smack down, brought down on you. It's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a wonder. It's a standing amazed that this God would actually remove his judgment from them and would love them despite their sinfulness. This is the same thing that the psalmist said in 130. We read it earlier. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Now, if, if this experience with Jonah in the storm was enough to transform these soldiers from works-based, fear-based religionists of convenience to followers of the true God, how much more should we respond to the same God you see, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he, he, he is met by a bunch of people who come to Him and say, do us a miracle, do us a sign, do something amazing so that we can believe in You and trust in You. And Jesus responds to them and He says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying there is a greater Jonah here. Yeah, Jonah risked his life for those sailors, but, but I am going to give my life for you. There's only one storm, friends, that can really take you out. Do you understand that? 
There's only one storm in the end that really matters, that you should really be afraid of, that could really damage you and destroy you, and that is the storm that will come at the judgment for our sin at our deaths. That's the storm that can really bury us. But Jesus, you see, Jesus, he actually was the ultimate willing substitute. He says, nobody, nobody threw me into the ocean. I jumped in of my own accord. And he didn't just go underwater. He went under the ocean of God's judgment for sin so that you and I, we could have calm. We could have peace. We could have security. We could be, have assurance in the midst of our storms. How many of us have wondered as storms have, have risen up in our lives, lives and, and we have had to face them and we have been terrified of them. How many of us have wondered, does God really love me here? Is God punishing me for something here? Why is this bad thing happening to me here? And the answer of the Bible is, is that you don't ever have to think that way. You don't ever have to worry like that. You don't ever have to allow that, that strange thought to enter into your mind because God has punished his son in your place and you can be assured no matter what, no matter what you face. You will never face judgment. But only his loving embrace. It's unbelievable. I, I was like, how do I apply this? When I was trying to write this. And you know, there's... there's there's a couple ways to apply it. One is to apply it just the way I said. When you're facing your hardships, when bad news comes, when you get that phone call or whatever, you can be certain that this is not God out to get you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've entrusted him. That's one way to apply this. Another way to apply this is to say to some of you who maybe... Some of you maybe are... Are, you're crying out to these gods that can't save. You have put your money on that person or you have put your money on your looks or you have put your money in that education or you have put your money down on that family or you have put your money down on that bank account. You have put your money down on those things. But don't you see, even the ancients understood this. All of those gods, all of those things, they're part of this world. And they will not last. Two years from now, I'm probably going to have to get that suit taken out. Because I may look good now, but I'll probably grow and sag or the styles will change and I'll be stuck with this geeky suit because everybody's wearing something else now. It's all transient. But Jesus is forever. He didn't just die. He came up out of the, out of the ocean. He was raised again and he is forever. And if you trust him, you have him forever. And then the last way is just to say to Followers of Jesus, I know you still get scared. I know you still get anxious. I know you still get worked up and you wonder if everything's going to be okay. 
what do you do with this? You, what you got to do is you have got to apply this. And what do I mean by apply this? I'll give you a perfect illustration. So Wednesday morning, a group of men pray together. And some mornings, it's, it's just kind of <laughs> like they're there. And you just pray, and it's all right. It's always good. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, all, it's like exercise, right? Like, sometimes you don't really want to do it, but it's always good. But sometimes it's good. And I came to prayer on Wednesday morning. I was a little out of sorts. Sometimes I get a little out of sorts. And I was a little out of sorts. And we prayed. One of the, one of the, one of the men who comes, he, he read something from Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul says that he prays that, that we would be able to know the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ. And he read that, and then we, we kind of prayed that, and, we, and, and all of us were praying this kind of stuff together, and I just found it working into me, working into my heart through prayer, through prayer with my brothers. And of course, I'm always telling you, come to prayer. But the, the greater application is, you can't just say, I know that doctrine in my head. You have got to work it into your heart so that it becomes part of your experience. And, and one of the ways is prayer. One of the ways is being here this morning. One of the ways is being in relationship with other Christians where you can talk about this stuff. And one of the ways, of course, is through reading God's Word. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you again for what you've done in the lives of those sailors. Who knows? Maybe somebody here is an actual descendant of one of those sailors, and here we are hearing the good news that you brought to them, and it's been brought to us. I pray, Father. Yeah, work that truth deep in our hearts that we don't have to make ourselves fit for your grace. But by your grace, you assure us and strengthen us and help us in our trials and our troubles. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.